Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you guys are here with us virtually, actually, whatever we say anymore. We're just glad to be here in God's presence. I love that God's presence sounds. And so uh, we're here to celebrate what God has done. Um, but I just want to take a pause for just a moment. I want us to think about um, what it would be like to juxtapose the joy of the arrival of Jesus with the loss of your spouse. And I just want to pray uh, for Ken this morning, just briefly, as, as he's facing a brand new reality that didn't exist four hours ago. And, and I want each of us just for a moment, just pause. What would that be like? How challenging. But to frame our grief, we need to hold it against the backdrop of joy. Listen to out of Psalm 43, it says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. And then I love this part. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you. So Father, this morning we come to you knowing that you are our exceeding joy. There's nothing greater than you, Jesus. There's nothing greater than your first coming leading to your second coming. We have no greater hope. We have no better anchor in this life than that. But right now we just recognize the difficulty that Ken is facing and many others who've once. And we just pray for the comfort of your Holy Spirit, the comfort that Paul talks about in Corinthians, that your spirit will be present. And you'll be present through your people as we obediently intercede for others who are walking through hardship. So right now, still our anxious hearts. Bring us into your presence where we know you and we can learn from you and we can be humbled by you. Amen. Well, this is part four in our part, sorry, part three in our Advent series. We've already looked at uh, prep anticipation. Today's all about joy. And then on Friday, uh, Don Blair is going to teach us about the incarnation. And so uh, you can turn in your Bibles. I think it's page 573 if you're going to grab one of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be in 9 verses 1 through 7 the whole morning. So did you guys know a recent survey said that Americans are the unhappiest they've ever been? Shocker, right? Like, uh, who could have seen that coming? <laughs> but listen to these numbers, right? In 2018, the same survey, and 31% of people were found to be, quote, truly happy, whatever that means, okay? So 31%, now guess what it is this year? Any guesses? Toss them out. 15? Pretty close, Alex Doring. 14. 14% say they are truly happy. In fact, one of the uh, survey participants, his name is Jonathan, he's from Austin, Texas. He lost his job as a marketing manager for a law firm. And he says this, it caused me to reevaluate everything in my life. 2020 has just fast-forwarded a spiritual decay. When things are good, you just don't tend to look inward. Hmm. So looking back, I probably just wasn't a nice guy to be around from all the stress and the anxiety that the loss of my job brought on. But 
this has forced an existential crisis. Now this guy, if you read through the rest of the survey, he doesn't know Jesus. But he's recognizing what's happening. He's recognizing that against the background of darkness, joy shines brightest which is going to be kind of our big idea that we're going to be circling around today. That, that against the background of darkness, joy is going to shine the brightest. And so before we open to Isaiah 9, we will a bit of the context. If you think through Isaiah, many of you know this, it was about 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years. And we have some of the most profound, accurate prophecies there about Jesus but in the 720s B.C., before Christ, as, as Isaiah is writing, Israel would have been marked by war, by economic oppression, by destruction. In fact, about a decade before, Damascus, which was Israel's kind of um, main ally against the Assyrians, they had been defeated and destroyed and captured. And as a result, it pay a high annual tribute, just taxes. I mean, what's certain in life but death and taxes, right? And even in biblical times. And so here we have this picture where the Assyrians had ended up joining forces kind of unwillingly with, or not unwillingly, but with conquering Damascus and then just making Israel pay tribute year after year after year. That's crazy. And often we think, well, how, you know, it really couldn't get that bad. And it can. But I kind of want to pull us back to what Scripture talks about. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 brings this out. There's three things I want to pull out today and then kind of expound on. The first one is that sometimes we choose our darkness. The second one is that the arrival of Jesus brings joy. And the third one is that joy is a secure gift. So let's start with how we can choose our darkness. And before you read in, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is what we're going to be looking at, you kind of have to get the background. So the background is starting in chapter 8, just a few verses up. So just kind of scroll up in your Bible there and listen to this. I'm not going to read all of, of 16 through 22 just for the sake of time. I'm just going to read verses 20 through the end. Says, this is Isaiah speaking. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I want you to be paying attention throughout the course of today because you're going to see darkness and light on display. They're going to be diametrically opposed and you're going to start to see how God uses them as themes. And he says, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth and behold, distress and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, what he's getting at here is this is a choice. Sometimes we choose our darkness. Isaiah 9 then starts out with these famous words, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, 
He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And here it is, the people who walked in darkness have seen a who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them light has shone. You see, in Isaiah 8, Isaiah makes this commitment to trust God, verses 16 through 18. And then God's word is shown as the only source of light in verses 19 through 20. And then he talks about in verses 21 and 22, this idea that darkness is going to fall on those who curse or turn from God. So then what do we make of this idea of walking in darkness and dwelling in a land of deep darkness? Well, I would just say this, it's probably this idea of the ongoing experience of the nation of Israel and as an extension of that. This is his job, day in and day out, working with darkness. In fact, that term darkness, it occurs about 207 times in the Bible, over and over and over again. And the majority of references that you see with this word of darkness are in absence of God or a distance from his presence, most times chosen. But likewise, when, when Isaiah brings up this idea of light, on them a great light has shone, right? That word, light, dawn, things like that, occurs some 265 plus times in Scripture. And almost every time, it's about this idea of God's favor, of God's salvation, of God's power. And quite honestly, it's juxtaposed with our response to it. So light comes up, and then the question is, what do you do with it? How do you respond to the light? You see, from a truth-to-life perspective, it stands to reason that if I can choose my darkness, I can also choose joy. I remember my pastor in college used to say this all the time when he would preach, choose to sin, choose to suffer. We just say it over and over and over again. It's like, you're, you're choosing this. Oftentimes when Jess and I are disciplining our kids and they're upset that just because we're providing the discipline that's needed, we might remind them, I'm sorry that you chose this. Well, I didn't choose to get a spanking. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> right? This was something you were warned of. Sorry you chose this. And so there's this picture in Isaiah 9. You're saying, well, if, if I choose my darkness, well, how, how can I also choose joy? Well, let's see if we can walk these things out a little bit. In Isaiah 9, 2, it says that they walked in darkness. Walked carries with it this idea of continual process, like ongoing movement, journey, continual choice. 1 John 2, 6, or to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's referring to Jesus. So then that begs the question, how did Jesus walk? Jesus walked in faith. Jesus walked in obedience. Jesus walked in justice. Jesus walked in mercy. Ultimately, big picture, Jesus walked in love. Do you? Is that common for you? Is that common for me? What about the second part of Isaiah 9-2 where it says that those who dwelt there in a land of deep darkness, how could that be? A choice of joy. Well, in John 15, verses 4 and 5, John, um, or actually Jesus, abide in me and I in you. 
And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so there's just this awesome picture of surrender. If I choose joy, I must also choose surrender to the very one who brought joy. It's a recognition of his authority, that his words, his actions, his decrees, his laws, his standard is the only thing that brings joy. But knowing it isn't enough. You have to obey it. So sometimes we choose our darkness. Secondly, the arrival of Jesus brings joy. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And I began asking myself this question as I was preparing this week. What is joy like? And I thought, well, this would be fun. What's joy like? New baby. What? A new baby? Yes. <laughs> Says the one who doesn't have a brand new child in her home. Yes, for a long time. But she can recognize through experience, joy is a new baby. How profound that joy is a new baby and Jesus comes as an infant, right? What else is joy like? What's it like? (laughs) You got the husband and the wife, both ends of the spectrum. (laughs) Yes, joy is like retirement. It's not actually retirement. It's just like it. What else is joy like? See, this is interesting. When we start to talk about joy and we're like, what's joy like? And everybody's like, I don't know. But God says that he came to give us life and life more abundant. He wants us to live a life of joy and we're over here. We can't even name what joy is like. What is joy like? There it is. There it is. Joy is not tethered to circumstance. Joy is not something that you get because tasting candy bar or a juicy steak or a wonderful date with your girlfriend. Joy is Jesus. Truly and purely, that's it. And somehow we have muddled this up with our love of the world and we have thought, oh, joy is like all these little cute things that fit my, my preferences. Joy is when we sing the right songs at church and when, no. Joy is Jesus. So joy is like seeing after darkness. It's like being on the beach and watching the darkness fade as the sun consumes everything. That's what it's like. Then verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased it. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Listen, joy is expansive. Joy is expanding. It's growing. Seventy times alone in the book of Isaiah, the term joy, gladness, happiness, those words are all used like 70 times in Isaiah. Now, he was living in some of the darkest, most oppressive days, right? He was living and ministering in some of the most insane circumstances that would discourage any of us. Joy is expansive. And you say, well, why the farmer and the soldier? Why are they talking about this idea of joy at the harvest? Any farmer, when they bring in the harvest, I'm not sure whether it's the wife that is more glad that she gets her husband back or whether it's the farmer who's like, praise God for his provision. I wasn't sure how it was going to work out at the beginning. It was a little uncertain, but look, he came through. 
It's awesome. There's joy at the harvest. And then it says there's joy when they divide the spoil. If you're, if you're a soldier and you dominate and you win, guess what you like to do? You like to take all the bounty from your victory and divide it up among your soldiers. Because why? You now possess something that you... It's expanding. Joy is expansive in the heart, but it's only when it's continually practiced through gratitude. And we'll get to that. Isaiah 9.4 says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, I love this, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. <clears throat> so joy breaks the heavy yoke. Joy breaks the heavy yoke. When you start to look at this idea of, of a yoke, a staff, and a rod, particularly a yoke, most of us who aren't agrarian or, or farmers by nature don't really know what this looks like. Um, and so, I think we have time. Um, Oliver, I need uh, you and Xander to come up here. Yeah, real quick. Okay, now um, I need you right here, Xander, and Oliver, I need you right here. Now, I need you guys to kind of bend down, put your heads like this, right? Okay, now these, these two massive strapping young lads are, they are my work oxen, right? They're, they're my, they're my uh, cows, if you will, right? And so a yoke in ancient times, you can't plow a field with a John Deere in ancient times, Right? which kind of stinks because it would have been really helpful. But, but you have to have like two very powerful strapping young lads. But they always want to go their own way all the time. And so the way that you would get around that is you would say, okay, I'm going to yoke them together like this. Now, go ahead and try to go one way, Xander. Well, look, there goes Xander, and we're going to go this way, right? And we're going to go that way. Now, think about this for a second. The yoke, thanks, boys. The yoke is this idea of sin, you are yoked to something that you don't want, and it takes you a direction you don't want to go. And he's saying that joy is the breaking of the heavy yoke. Joy is something that shatters this thing that drove you in a direction you didn't want to go. So how does that work then? The first point that I had said that, you know, sometimes we choose our darkness. Guess what? When you're yoked to sin and you choose disobedience, you willingly go where that yoke takes you. But overall, this idea of a yoke, a staff, and a rod, those were instruments that, that dominating nations would use against the people they were oppressing. They were all about domination. And so those things are shattered. Those things are shattered. And, and it's interesting, he says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You're like, what's Midian? Midian, or Gideon, decides to follow the Lord, but he needs a little bit of help and encouragement, right? All of us like to think, man, Gideon, he had to like lay out a fleece and make sure there was dew on it before he really felt like he heard from the Lord. Yeah, so would I. If I had been dominated by an enemy for years upon years upon years, and God says, I need you to go conquer them, and I'm like, eh, not sure I really want to do that. So God then takes his large army, thins it down to 300. Sounds like a tremendous idea, God. Sounds like you're really up to something wise here. You're like, well, how many army uh, soldiers did Midian have? About 135,000. Okay, that sounds like good odds. That's like Chicago Bears playing 
they're going to lose. Like, it just isn't going to go well. And so here's this picture where you have, he said, you've, you've shattered, you've broken this as on the day of Midian. Well, how did he do that? He sends like a bunch of trumpet-blowing, torch-lighting soldiers to defeat an army of 135,000. They go into the camp in darkness. And what do they do? Blow a trumpet, break their pots, and reveal the light. And what happens? Victory. And it's no mistake that Isaiah would choose a battle won by light. Joy broke. Finally, in verse 5, he says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like, what in the world does that mean? It correlates with verse 1 when he says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. So to get to Israel and to conquer Israel and to dominate Israel, guess what Assyria had to do? They had to travel a path along the sea, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two of the smaller tribes out of the whole nation. They were the first ones to experience the oppression and the conquering domination of the Assyrians. And so now Isaiah is saying, you're going to make glorious the way of the sea. What in the world? What does that mean? It's about redemption. The way that led to our destruction, he now redeems. That's awesome. That is awesome. That means for the person who's addicted. That means for the person who's stuck. That means for the person who's discouraged. That the very thing that they're looking at and they're saying, there's just no way that anything good can come from this. And God says, watch me. Watch me. Watch what I will do. Watch how I'll take that circumstance, that addiction. Watch how I'll take that trapping that you've been under and watch me. Watch what I can do. Because in verse 5, when it says the, the boot and, and the garment rolled in blood, they're going to be tossed in the fire. That is God saying, I'm going to take the very thing that destroyed you and I'm going to use it as kindling. That's awesome. That is such a powerful image. Like, you've got these boots of dead warriors laying around because you were victorious, and these garments are all rolled in blood and just stained up. And guess what? As a, as a soldier, you're dividing the spoil, and then you're taking these useless, dirty, filthy things, and you're throwing them, and a fire's getting huge, and you're saying, we are victorious. That's the picture that's being created here. That's awesome. It's about redemption. And quite honestly, it sounds a lot like salvation. Verse 2, that joy is like seeing after darkness. Verse 3, joy expands in my heart now that I've come to know Jesus. Verse 4, joy breaks the heavy yoke of sin and slavery. And verse 5, joy is redeeming. Sounds a lot like what God does when he saves a soul. That's awesome. So sometimes we choose our darkness. Secondly, the arrival of Jesus brings Joy, and let's remember, against the background of darkness, joy shines brightest. Finally, number three, joy is a secure gift. Let me show you how. Verses six and seven say this, for to us a child 
is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, I love this, there will be no end. On the throne of his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it's a gift. Joy is a gift. It says to us, and a son is given. Those are gifts. Those are not things I earn. Those are not things that I somehow manufacture. Those are not things that I come out and get for myself. It's God saying, here. And he hands it to me. That's incredible. And then he goes on to list the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting prince of peace. These are names that designate the character of Jesus. And you say, well, how? Well, a, a wonderful counselor. He is wisdom getting to the heart of the matter. A good counselor will listen, name the pain, and show you a path forward. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. Jesus himself is plow, power applied to weakness. I mean, think about everything that they thought Jesus would be when he arrived. He's going to be a battler. He's going to ride us. He's going to save us. He's going to have a huge sword. No, he's going to be a baby born in a barn and murdered on a cross for something he didn't do. Well, that sounds a little backward, God. Get used to it. It's kind of how I run things. You know, it's, so there's this picture that we need to grasp. Then he says, everlasting father. Listen. I'm never going to attend the funeral of Jesus, ever. We're never attending the funeral of Jesus, and we all need his provision, hourly, minute by minute. And then finally, he's the Prince of Peace. I love the Hebrew understanding of peace. It's rich and contextual and full. We think of peace, and we're like, oh, nobody's fighting. No, no, no. Peace is the absence of striving. So you ask yourself, when the wonderful counselor has named my pain and shown me a path forward, when he's applied his power to my weakness, when he has demonstrated a provision because even death can't hold him for me, then why am I still striving? For what do I think that my effort is going to gain me? Nothing. Joy is a gift, but it's also secure. It says there in verse 7 that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen, it's God's passion for the glory of his name and the joy of his people that accomplishes this. And like, well, what can you point to? I love that phrase, of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. Think about that for just a minute. We hear the word government. What are some synonyms that pop into your mind when you hear the word government? 
That's it. That was the synonym. It's just laughter, right? What are some synonyms? What? I'm here to help. (laughs) Yeah, we hear government and immediately we think 2020. I mean, look look at how crazy things have been. Or or we look back and we're like, oh, Watergate. Remember that? That was kind of foolish. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like we we look all through history and we think scandal. We think um, power corrupts. We think... That's not the type of government that is being talked about here. Think of it. He says this, the increase of his government. Actually, in Hebrew, that term covenant can be of dominion, power, and sovereignty. So, think, read it with that in mind. Of the increase of his dominion and power and sovereignty, there will be no end. Now that sounds peaceful, doesn't it? That sounds awesome, that the increase of God's dominion in my heart, the increase of God's power in my heart, the increase of God's sovereignty over all things, that's what I want. There's never going to be an end to that because that's the end to which the world is heading. We're heading toward this cataclysmic piece of God saying, I got it all under control, everything. Now, the person listening to Isaiah's prophecy would have heard that piece of like, yeah, he's going to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And they would have thought, justice and righteousness, yeah, right. Have you seen the wickedness of the Assyrians? Have you seen how they act, what they do, how they carry themselves? Seriously, Isaiah, get a life. Or perhaps, have you seen the state of the U.S.? Have you seen the state of the world? Or maybe let's just get real drilled and dialed in here. Have you seen the state of my own heart? He says justice and righteousness are how it's functionally, the way that it's accomplished is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So there's a term there, Lord of hosts, that we read and we're like, oh yeah, Lord of hosts, yeah, he hosts parties and potlucks. No, no, no. Lord of hosts is about being the general of an army of thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of angels. So the zeal of God, backed by the armies of heaven, that's what's going to get her done. I'm there. I'm with him. I'm all over that. Do you want to be? Is that something that you want? The increase of his government, his peace rising? That's what I want. If you remember that study at the beginning, Lexi Walker was another person who was interviewed, and she says this. She's a trust fund manager who lost many things, including her job and her favorite pet and her father, all within two months, let alone the idea of being able to just socialize, like just go out because there's lockdowns all over the world. And she says this, it's been one thing after another. This is very hard. The worst thing about this for me is I don't know what's going to happen next. If you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, um, things have been hard. Not everybody would say that. 2020 was awesome. But there are others who, for them, it's not. And so we're in this place where we're like, how do we respond? And I would just say, 
that when you think about it, the secure gift of joy needs to be met head on with this very simple truth. A child was stillborn and a son, the son, was still given. The circumstances of 2020 or the last 20 years of your life don't all happened over 2,000 years ago. They just don't. 700 years before Jesus, God's zeal prophesied that he was going to be bringing great light into great darkness. And now it's been accomplished and it's being fulfilled. So quite honestly, we anticipate with joy this present and future reign of Jesus. In fact, I'd probably encourage you to, to read John chapter 1 or 2 Peter 1 through 3 or Revelation 21 and 22 this week and just put together what happens to pose light and darkness and how is he going to accomplish these things. You see, against the background of darkness, joy shines brightest. My wife and I this week um, were listening to a podcast together and um, this woman was talking about this, uh, this idea. They went out into the yard and they got a couple of um, ears of corn with some kernels still on them. And um, that night at dinner, she had taken a couple of kernels, like three kernels of corn, and just set them at each place. And then dinner happens, you know, and they begin talking through this idea of gratitude. So let's choose joy. Maybe your day was horrific. Let's choose joy. What are some things that we are thankful for? What are some realities that we can name that God has given? And so then, you know, each one went around and, and they dropped in a kernel in a bowl that sat in the middle of the table. And I think that was last year and all throughout 2020, they've been dropping a kernel in for each time that they can remember something that they are thankful for. Guess what happened? Like, it accumulates right? So joy is expansive. Joy does not become something that expands within your heart if you're not full of gratitude. If you are somebody who is not thankful for anything, if you were like, I can like point out all the wrong, we don't need you. We've got plenty of those people. What we need are people who know how to name things they're thankful for, who know how to practice gratitude on a regular basis, whose skepticism is not their greatest spiritual gift. We don't need that. And so I'm going to close us in prayer and there's going to be a song as we wrap up that I, my heart is that you would listen to the words, right? But, but the other piece is that I really want you just to enter into a time of prayer. This is like, just take this time to be with the Lord. A couple of moments here where some, some words are being sung about the character and nature of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, how he's accomplished some things. And let's just, just pause our hearts and say, God, how do you want to speak to me this morning? Against the background of my darkness, how do you want your joy to shine brightest? Let's ask that question this week. So Father, thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Jesus Christ and how you are loving us through him um, from now till forever. And I pray now as we listen to the words of this song that our hearts would be filled with gratitude over everything that you've accomplished. And it's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.